Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, hello. Whoa, I don't know what that is. What's that? That's, uh, that's scary. Oh, there's Richard Dawkins. Uh, excellent. That's Richard Dawkins. All right, well, let me just introduce you first and establish uh, where we are and what we're doing. In fact, I'm going to pop him on hold for a second so you guys can make sure everything's okay there. Uh, and let me tell you what's happening. First of all, as you can probably tell, today and yesterday, I have a cold. Um, and when you have a cold and you're on the radio, you always have to sort of make a decision to what degree... Is it worth it for me to continue doing the show if I sound really terrible? But I, I tend to play that out to its farthest extremes. So um, we are talking. So we are going to be talking uh, to Richard Dawkins today. Let me tell you one of the reasons why we're going to be talking to Richard Dawkins. Uh, he will be at the Bushnell in Hartford for a conversation with Connecticut's own Carl Zimmer uh, on a Saturday night. Next Saturday night. This not this next Saturday night, November fourth. I just signed on Tuesday. I sent a wall that Carl Zimmer had signed. Uh, and I felt very honored to be asked. I mean, there were like a lot of other really important people up on the wall. And the Clintons had signed the wall. But, you know, signing the same wall as Carl Zimmer, that feels very good. Uh, anyway, tickets for an evening with Richard Dawkins are available at Bushnell.org. We are also talking to Richard Dawkins on the occasion of the publication of Science in the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist. Uh, he, of course, is an evolutionary biologist, a secularist, a rationalist, the author of more than a dozen books and many more popular articles and academic papers. Uh, and he is joining us from the Committee for, Skeptics, for Skeptical Inquiries 2017 conference in Las Vegas, which is a good place to be skeptical. Um, Richard Dawkins, welcome to our show. Uh, there's a terrible hum on the line. I've been trying to tell you. We can't do it this way. All right. So what I'm going to do is put, in, put you on hold. People are going to confer with you. Uh, about that and maybe redial you, but we don't want to lose you again. So uh, as you confer with Richard Dawkins, um, uh, make sure that we know how to get back to him because we're having a lot of trouble reaching him. Um, so while that's all happening, uh, I have to stall for time. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so now I wish I hadn't presented all those uh, fabulous details about why, why we're talking to him. So let me sort of set up some of the parameters of what this conversation is going to be. So, and, and I'm assuming that most of you know who Richard Dawkins is, but uh, for those of you who don't, I will kind of, I will kind of set this up. Um, he's probably best known for two things. One of them is writing a book many decades ago called The Selfish Gene. Within that book, he actually established the word meme. He described, he used the word meme to describe not the things that you see on the internet that have the picture and the big letters, not that kind of meme, uh, but uh, to describe ways in which uh, information uh, has an interest so to speak, in being passed along that's comparable to the interest a gene has. So in other words, if a gene doesn't manifest itself in the next generation or the generation after that, then the gene is lost, right? It, 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 has, if it, it has more of an interest in appearing in subsequent generations than, than it does in not appearing. You could, you could say, to whatever degree, where you're willing to accept this kind of metaphorical argument. And that similarly, a piece of information can function the same way that a piece of information, quote unquote, wants to be passed along. And that piece of information could be a joke. Um, it could be a, a political idea. It could be a way to build a bridge. 
Um, but that that idea, anyway, that that, and, and then when you start looking at information that way, it's very seductive. I'm not sure that Dawkins understood how seductive it was going to be. That there's actually kind of a quasi branch of thinking now called memetics, where you really do kind of, and and some really interesting books like Susan Blackmore's The Meme Machine, where you actually look at this whole question uh, of why certain things get passed along, why certain things don't, why information is quote-unquote adaptive as opposed to, in, in a similar way that you could talk about a gene or a genetic quality being adaptive. So anyway, that's one aspect of Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene and the whole notion of a meme. Um, now, there's lots of other reasons why Richard Dawkins is well-known, and probably the other one that is chief among them is his status uh, among a group that was sometimes known as the Four Horsemen of the Atheist Apocalypse, that would have been the late Christopher Christopher Hitchens, who is mentioned in this book. Uh, Daniel Dennett, who has appeared uh, on this show, and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Uh, this notion of really talking about um, atheism and rejection of religion in a more proactive way, to put it mildly. All right, we're going to go back to the phone and see how we're doing with Richard Dawkins. Hi, I've been introducing you for five minutes. You're very well okay, introduced at this well point. Then. All right, um, it's still not great, but we'll have a go. All right, yes, we'll have a go at it. All right, so. Um, let me just begin, well, actually, before we even do that, I'll say one more thing by way of introducing Richard Dawkins, a measure of one's cultural penetration uh, once one rises to a certain ranks, uh, rank in the world is whether or not the Simpsons can pull off a kind of recherche a joke about you. So here are the Simpsons doing a Richard Dawkins joke. Down here we worship famous atheist Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion. <laughs> I'm making Catholic saints stew. <laughs> so, Richard Dawkins, I'm assuming that had to feel good. <laughs> it's come to a pretty pass when that's one claim to fame, yes, okay. All right. Well, you have so many other uh, claims to, to fame as well. I want to begin. So this uh, this new book is um, uh, uh, kind of a Christomathy, a word I don't think I've ever used before. So it's a collection of, of different uh, speeches, uh, articles, essays that have appeared uh, over the years. I, I guess I want to begin with an overall question, which is, uh, are you at the moment an optimist or a declinist? Do you think uh, overall uh, that the world is getting better, or as Stephen, Stephen Pinker argues, no, there are actually reasons to think that the world that, that the world is getting better. I'm sorry, <laughs> or as others might yes. believe that it's getting worse. Well, Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, mm. is looking at history on a broad sweep mm. over the centuries, and over the centuries, there's no doubt things are getting better. Uh, things can go into reverse, however, on a temporary basis, and I'm afraid that's what we're in at the moment. But the overall arc of history is in the right direction. We're in a temporary reversal, a sawtooth at the moment. Yeah, and so I want to talk to you about that temporary reversal, but I also want to um, uh, talk about how you were feeling. Uh, uh, I'm in... not hearing you. I'm very sorry. Oh, all right. This is on Skype. This is just not working. All right. So, um, so you can't hear me at all. Okay, I can, I can hear you now. All right. I will talk uh, as loudly and as clearly and not now. as I can. Oh, but you can't hear me now. All right. Um, I can now, but I couldn't when you went away just now. All right. So um, in 2011, and this is in your book, um, you're talking about Christopher Hitchens, and you said with characteristic effrontery, he took his tour through the Bible Belt states, 
the reptilian brain of southern and middle America rather than the easier pickings of the country's cerebral cortex to the north and down the coasts. Uh, And then he said, can you still hear me? Yes, I can. All right. So, but at the end of this, you said um, the plaudits he received were all the more gratifying. Something is stirring in this great country. So that's how you were feeling in 2011. That sounds like an optimist talking. Yeah, that was pretty optimistic at the time. Um, by the way, I suppose Connecticut's firmly in the cerebral cortex of the country. We try. Um, he, he um, Christopher, and indeed I, have uh, often visited the Deep South and the so-called Bible Belt. It's amazing how many places in the country call themselves part of the Bible Belt. I enjoy that. I get very good audiences there, and so did he. We get huge audiences uh, and are very politely, courteously uh, received. And I think the reason is that people in those areas feel beleaguered because because of what they're surrounded by. And so when somebody like Christopher Hitchens goes there, they feel... Uh, they, they feel gratified that he has come to the Bible Belt, and I get the same feeling too. Well, if you felt that something was stirring, something good apparently in 2011, what was that thing? What, what did you think was stirring? Well, just that bonhomie um, that you're describing? No, it wasn't just that. It's also that, and it's continued to this day, by the way, the number of people in the United States who uh, claim no religious belief is steadily going up. It's now about 25%, which is huge. It's as big as any particular religious denomination. There are very large numbers of people who are not religious, but the fact is not widely understood, not widely known. In particular, it's not widely known by politicians who still think they have to suck up. Well, I mean, that's... Oh, boy. We are definitely in phone hell today. All right, so we're going to make a, one more attempt to get hold of him. Um, I think you're going to, first of all, it, it might be a good day to open the phones in, in as much as I may not have discussed uh, as much as I uh, had thought I might. So uh, as we're talking, if something kind of excites you, uh, you can call 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Um, to me... And when we get Richard Dawkins back, this is something that I want to talk about. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's sort of an odd metric. And uh, the notion that the way that you would measure whether things are good or not is whether or not people either believe or don't believe in God. And obviously, in, in Europe, um, this is over, right? This whole question is over. Uh, there's a moment in one of Stoppard's plays uh, when he says, uh, when one of the characters says, Essentially, you know, at what point there must be some discernible point where the balance tipped uh, against religious belief and for non-belief when, in other words, the nose had it. So, you know, in, in, in Europe, especially Western Europe, this is kind of over. It's gone in the other direction. Now, it seems to me that that doesn't keep appalling things from happening. Um, and that the same problems, if, they, if we can agree that they are problems, of nationalism are afflicting Europe pretty much the way they are afflicting the United States. I mean, maybe they haven't, you could be argued that they so far haven't elected anybody quite as appalling as the person that we have elected, but I, I, I'm not sure that he has the right enemy in this particular debate. Uh, anyway, we're uh, going to be trying to get a hold of Richard Dawkins. Our number, if you want to call in, 860-275-7266. Uh, If necessary, I will um, go back 
to my WTIC talk radio roots and talk for an entire hour and take calls. I know how to do that. Right now, Wolfie, uh, can we take a break? Can we pull that off? Why don't we take a break while we see if we can reestablish communications? All right. We are in the grip of one of our occasional battles with communications technology. Uh, fortunately, I like chaos, so that's good. Uh, all right. So now we're trying a different thing. We're trying Skype. Oh, we're trying to talk to Richard Dawkins. I've already introduced him seven ways to Sunday. Uh, Richard Dawkins, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yeah. Fabulous. All right. So let's... Oh, fabulous. There's an echo damage. Yeah. All right. Well, can you, if you can put up with an echo... Um, uh, Hang on. This, by the way, is great radio. Um, all right. So um, I, I'm also suggesting that maybe people call in if we continue to have some of these problems here. Uh, our number is 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. Uh, have you tried something else now? Have you got uh, headphones on or something? I'm putting headphones on now. All right. Um, this is this is the, these are the times which try the souls of hosts, but I, I like this. John Dankosky was just nice enough to walk in here and offer to kind of co-host with me. But I'm kind of insistent on trying to get through these things by myself. Uh, there's a stubborn streak that I have. All right, how are you doing now? Mm, not there at all. Uh, all right, so uh, let me. <laughs> I dare not laugh. Um, we're, we are attempting to make a contact with Richard. There's some way in which this is a metaphor for something. I'm not quite sure exactly what it is, but there's some way uh, in which uh, some of the uh, themes that are brought up in Richard Dawkins's book uh, are being played out here in this uh, communications gaffe. Uh, but let's see how we're doing. All right, uh, Richard Dawkins, can you hear me now? I'm starting to feel like the guy on the Verizon commercial. All right, I'm going to take some calls. You know what? Uh, we'll see if we can uh, pull this thing back together again. But, oh, there's Mark. He's gone. I, I am accursed in every possible way. All right, here's Aaron in New Haven. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Con. How you doing? Good. So you're on the air. Sure. So I was just going to chime in. Um, I finished a program at Yale Divinity School recently. And um, I just think, you know, given that Dawkins is a self-proclaimed rationalist, uh, a lot of the postmodern critique of rationalism is precisely that uh, even if religion, quote-unquote, goes away, it doesn't change fundamentally uh, that human beings, while we like to pat ourselves on the back that we're so rational uh, in the wake of the Enlightenment, in fact, that's not exactly the case. And, that, and so in many cases, nationalism and these types of movements, uh, in fact, are just filling the vacuum uh, that now religion is seemingly gone from. So it's not, and so many uh, postmodern philosophers will say, well, look, it's not whether human beings believe, quote unquote, or have faith, but rather what? What is it they believe, or what do they have faith in? And, and ultimately, it's not that we're chiefly rational. Well, yes, we have reason, but in fact, that we have these deeper gut level 
fundamental beliefs that drive us. And I can take myself off the air. All right. Uh, well, that that seems to be happening with people who call in anyway. They just take themselves off the air. All right. Well, let me just respond to that, though, Aaron, because it's really an, uh, a couple of interesting points. One of the things that I had hoped to talk to Richard Dawkins about was the notion that, in other words, that, you know, very much of very much the way he evaluates reality. And by the way, I think we might be doing a Richard Dawkins show without Richard Dawkins. So if feel free to call in about uh, religion, atheism, uh, how it affects the political sphere, uh, anything else that comes up here. The number is 860-275-7266. Many of you have called in. Harvey, Robert, Mark, Letitia, I will try to get uh, to you. But I was going to offer, as I often do to guests, uh, I was going to offer Richard Dawkins a hypothetical or metaphorical uh, magic wand and say to him, um, and, and maybe we have him right now, so I can say it to him. Uh, we can try one more time. Uh, Richard Dawkins, are you there? Absolutely not. All right. So, hmm? Yeah, it's no. So we're, he's not coming out. Okay. So we're going to do a Richard Dawkins show without Richard Dawkins. So to Aaron's point, I was going to offer Richard Dawkins a metaphorical or hypothetical magic wand uh, and, and say, all right, uh, this magic wand will reach back into 1900, and you can eliminate one of two things. You can eliminate nationalism or you can eliminate religion because religion is his big bugbear, right? It's his big boogeyman. Um, but the reality is if you eliminated nationalism, presumably you would avoid World War I, which killed millions of people and was essentially about nationalism and, and militarism, um, and, and World War II, which was about nationalism and militarism. And presumably the Nanking Massacre and the Cultural Revolution, these are things that killed millions of people. That, you know, nationalism is a far more dangerous concept in a lot of ways, at least if you're looking at loss of lives and human suffering and stuff like that. I'm not saying that religious fanatics don't cause trouble, but, you know, nationalism has been a, big, a much bigger problem. And it's why we should be scared right now by so much nationalism, not just here in the United States, but also abroad. And that, you know, in these countries that are not at all religious, um, Western European countries, there are nationalistic and, and at times racist movements that are, you know, insurgent in, in all of these. So, um, all right. So anyway, here we go. We're doing a Richard Dawkins show without Richard Dawkins. Um, and I, I cannot speak for Richard Dawkins. So you're going to have to phrase your questions in a way that I don't have to answer them on his behalf. But here's Harvey in Rocky Point. Hi, Harvey. Hi, Colin. Great to talk with you. Okay. Uh, I, I had a question for Richard. I guess maybe you'll never uh, get to ask him, but uh, you, seems... you and I can discuss it, Harvey. Okay. Well, uh, uh, Dawkins sometimes seems to hate philosophy. Uh, people have asked him about philosophy, and he and uh, he and uh, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the astronomer Tyson. Uh, I've seen Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson. Yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I've seen them together on panels in which they trash philosophy because uh, philosophers don't pay enough attention to uh, contemporary science. And, I, you know, it seems like he's friends with Daniel Dennett and appears with Daniel Dennett sometimes. And Daniel Dennett's one of the most, one of the foremost contemporary philosophers. I don't understand why he's, uh, why he gives philosophy such a hard time. Well, I mean, isn't philosophy, Harvey, a little bit like religion in the sense that it's practiced lots of different ways? And so, yes, Dawkins is probably going to have a problem with, I would assume that Dawkins would have a bigger problem with Plato, who is mentioned, I think, in one of the chapters of this book, uh, and, and perhaps less of a problem with Aristotle. Plato is dealing in absolutes. Aristotle is dealing in the real world. I mean, to have a problem with philosophy is, at least to my way of thinking, I mean, it's sort of like having a problem with 
I don't know, paint or something. I mean, it just, you know, philosophy is, is, I mean, it's so many different things. Uh, or maybe like, maybe like having a problem with religion, which is also, as you say, practiced in many different ways. Right, religion, I mean, you know, ISIS is our worst example of religion these days and how religious can be practiced. But if, I mean, nobody really knows how big ISIS is, but ISIS is probably at the outside around 200,000 people. I mean, that's the size of Wolverhampton, England, you know. I mean, uh, I, and there are a lot of people who are practicing religion in ways that organize relief efforts uh, to, to stricken areas. There are, I mean, people who do good things in, name, in the name of religion. It always seems kind of odd to me to have that categorical objection. But I can't, I, I, I'm not sure that I know for a fact that, that Dawkins dislikes philosophy. Um, and, and certainly, yes, he and Dennett have been on the same page about a lot of stuff. But these guys, they also, they shapeshift a little bit, you know, so, so whatever. All right. Well, I yeah. hope that was a satisfactory conversation, uh, Harvey. That's what I'm in the business of offering today. Um, all right. Let's go to Robert in Newington. Hi, Robert. Oh, this is kind of funny. So people keep hanging up. Have patience. I will get to you. Uh, all right. Here's Mark in Old Saybrook. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. You're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so anyway, love your show, um, and thanks to you and all the other people who are still thinking. Um, I, I guess my point is, it may be obvious and it may be small, but I think, you know, when we have these deep philosophical discussions about whether God exists and, and whatnot, it seems to me that most, a lot of the people who, who believe strongly in religion and God and all of that really don't. I mean, they're, they're doing it for other reasons. And it seems like it's it's only the atheists who are really thinking hard about whether God exists or not. Well, that's um, a, that's an interesting uh, argument. Although, I mean, I think some of those reasons that people practice religion but don't necessarily have a firm belief in God, some of those reasons are good reasons, aren't they? I mean, I don't know. I, I go to church pretty—I haven't been in like six weeks, but typically I go to church. I go to church not because I have this really rooted understanding of how I think the universe is set up or, or what's true and what's not true in the Bible, or you know, not because I have this real certainty uh, of the role of Jesus Christ in my life or the universe, but because it's a good place to think about things, about why we're here and how to conduct ourselves. And no, I grant you that. Um, and, and I think there, there is a line between going to church and believing in God. But um, uh, it just seems to me that it skews the argument a bit to, you know, when you look at politicians, for instance, who are invoking uh, God and, and religion in their politics. I mean, clearly, m- most of them are doing it for for ul- ulterior motives. And, you know, earlier on, uh, Mr. Dawkins mentioned, you know, the Bible Belt. Uh, and I honestly believe that most of the people who go to church uh, in, in, in a lot of these places as, never really gave much thought to, or critical thought, to whether God exists or not. It's just they're sort of going along with the flow. And it is a social function, right? So, I I totally give you, I totally grant you that point, in particular particularly to the way religion is honored in American politics, in a way that it simply is not uh, honored or mandatory or anything like that uh, in in most of, of Europe. That would be regarded yeah. as an insane idea. So yes, I mean basically uh, uh, of the forty five presidents that we've had. 44 of them have self-identified as American Protestants. I mean, Trump has been has had one of the most 
um, unpersuasive identifications as a Protestant that probably we've ever seen in our history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we had one we had one Catholic president, right? And at the time uh, that John F. Kennedy was elected in 1960, <laughs> the religious historian Sidney Alstom said, this is the end of the American theocracy because uh, uh, Protestantism had been a, effectively a state religion, the Constitution notwithstanding. But, but right. since then, nothing has changed. We've gone back to having Protestant presidents, and you have to kind of, I mean, when Michael Dukakis was getting ready to run, he he kind of had to re-up with um, his uh, Greek Orthodox uh, roots. I mean, he hadn't been kind of a church-going guy for a while. He, he kind of re-upped a little bit so that he could mm. convincingly say that he was a church-going man. I mean, Reagan didn't really go to church, but I mean, in 1980, we had three candidates, all of whom professed to be born-again Christians. Mm-hmm. It was Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, and uh, John Anderson, all professing not to be just Christians, but born-again Protestant Christians. So yeah. Yeah, that's what you're saying, right? That this It was the, it was the, the, the religious label uh, uh, du jour. Um, so I guess what I'm saying, and, and again, it's, it's probably obvious, but when, we're, when, when a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads and saying, well, we're doing strange things in the name of God, um, you know, honestly, it's not. It has nothing to do with God at all. It's just a cloak that people wear to gain following. And I think at some point it becomes a question where you know the, the sort of the, the rabble has no clothes. You know. So anyway, um, maybe small, maybe obvious, but I, I just think I really do appreciate the, the the critical thinking. You know that that Christopher Hitchens used to bring and all the rest of it. But I think. Um, I think the people on the other side really aren't thinking critically at all, for the most part. Well, and it's, yeah. it's kind of debate among uh, atheists. Yeah, although, once again, I, I would hesitate. I mean, we're sort of back to Harvey's call. I would hesitate to paint all religionists with one brush. I mean, there are people who are truly reflective within the world of religion. Uh, and there are people, I hope I'm one of them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who is probably more of a seeker than anything else. But, I mean, I do go to church. And I go to church because there, it's, it's a matrix uh, for thinking about ethical action. It, it, it's a, an opportunity to stop what I'm doing, at least for a few hours once in a while, and think about other things. Uh, and those other things can be transcendent, uh, or they can be worldly. Uh, but it's a, it's a great way, at least, well, for me anyway, it's a great way to pause. I mean, I don't think that it leads me into any kind of Elmer Gantry-like charades about who I am. But I, but I also freely concede that there are Elmer Grantly, Elmer Gantry type charades being uh, perpetrated these days. Are we going to try him on the phone one more time? Is this like I, I feel like we're we're half an hour into the show and we've never satisfactorily established Richard Dawkins, although he has been listening apparently, so that's good. Hello, Richard Dawkins. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, finally. Well, this is so exciting. I had to spare it. And there are all kinds of things that would have been so much fun to talk about. And I was incredibly frustrated not being able to join in with your interesting callers. It's a very interesting program. All right. Well, is there anything? I mean, I have certain ways in which I could guide this conversation, but based on what you did here, is there anything that... Well, I, I heard you talking about nationalism, and I totally agree with you that nationalism is also very dangerous and... Certainly, World War One and World War Two were about nationalism, and so yes, I mean, if you if I could wave a magic wand, I would do away with both religion and nationalism. Yeah, I didn't equip your magic wand to do both of those things, but that but I take your point. It, it does seem to me that you look at what's happening in Western Europe right now, uh, where there's a, a comparable rise uh, of fairly nasty strains of nationalism, unaccompanied by any religious fervor. 
Yes, are you thinking of the xenophobia uh, which motivated Brexit, for example? Yeah, xenophobia motivating Brexit, but also, you know, the strong showing of Le Pen and uh, some of the, and, and what's happened to Merkel in Germany. I mean, we could really walk across yes. the map and, sh- you know, Geertz uh, yes. uh, uh, Wilders, we can sh- we could show a, a lot of signs of this. I mean, so what's happening there? That's not religiously fueled. What do you no, think is not. happening? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't exaggerate that too much, and Le, Le Pen didn't actually get in after all. Uh, and um, there's strong opposition to Brexit, and there are other reasons for Brexit, for voting Brexit, apart from xenophobia, although I suspect that xenophobia is the most important one. Right, um, and, and uh, well, I would agree as well. Um, when you look at this moment now, and so let's go back to your book, and um, there's a point at which you say, you're writing, I believe, in November of last year, uh, and you say that the phrase barbarians at the gate uh, seems uh, uh, appropriate. It tumps without irony, I think you said. Yes. Um, and so uh, what what do you think happened? I mean, in other words, do you have a working hypothesis? I know that you are uh, you have things to say about the Electoral College, and we can talk about those too, but, but do you have a working hypothesis about why things happened the way they did and how we got to our present moment? Well, I think Michael Moore's analysis is pretty plausible, actually, that it's it's sort of um, white working class people who are um, who felt left behind and deserted and and frustrated and paranoid. Um, but there no doubt are other reasons as well. I think there's a general dissatisfaction with politics and a tendency to kind of lash out and blame everything in sight um, out of out of frustration. But that it should go so far as to elect petulant two-year-old like Trump is, is actually deeply worrying. Well, it must feel also for you like a defeat of rationalism. And I mean, there's one point in your book where you say that if you know uh, somebody's position on the death penalty, um, you could probably guess their position on two or three other things. You can figure out probably where they are on the political spectrum. Although, you know, when cognitive scientists study this, people like Drew Weston who study it, what they find is that it's really more tribal than anything else. That if I tell you well, not you, but let, let's say that you're a, um, a Democrat, and I tell you that there's a new policy being offered uh, about um, Lyme disease, uh, and that it's being sponsored by, and I name a few prominent Democrats, um, Weston finds that you're far more likely to endorse the policy uh, than if I say the exact same thing, but say it is being proposed and endorsed by Republicans, that, that people are less likely to evaluate the policy itself and, and more likely to uh, find out right away which tribe it comes from, whether it's their tribe or not, which is kind of anti-rationalist. That's very interesting. I think, you, I think you've got a very good point there. There is a lot of that about. Um, my, my point about the left-right continuum was a, a genuinely academically curious point. I'm actually genuinely interested as to why um, the, the left-right continuum does seem to go quite a long way to characterize people. It's, it isn't far off the truth to say that if you know where somebody stands on gun control, you know where they stand on abortion and so, and so on and probably who they voted for. Um, so the, the, the setting that on one side, your point about tribalism is very interesting, and it is something we've all got to watch, and rationalists have got to watch it as much as anybody else, the idea that we, 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 we accept things when they come from our own tribe, 
more than we do from other tribes. It's a very good point. Well, I think your point about the left-right continuum is really good, too. I think the point you make there is that uh, a psychologist would need many dimensions to construct a profile of what Richard Dawkins' personality is. Like, there isn't just one set of two poles uh, where I could identify what sort of person you are in a satisfactory way if I were a psychologist. But politically, I kind of can, you're saying. Yes. And Christopher Hitchens was somebody who just been mentioned was was uh, very difficult to pin down on the left-right continuum. He would he wasn't clear which way he would jump. And I think a lot of people have trouble looking at my um, what, what I say too because they think on the one hand that I'm opposed to Islamism, which I am, and they they therefore think I ought to be in favour of Trump, which I emphatically am not. And so there's there's a confusion there. The enemy of my enemy is not necessarily That's my right, friend. Yeah, quite. Um, we're talking to Richard Dawkins right now. So uh, there's so many things that I, I want to talk to you about um, in, in this book. Uh, this is a book of, of essays and speeches called uh, Science and the Soul. Well, let me just start there. There's a way in which you're um, uh, maybe even with this title, waving a, a bit of a red flag in front of a bunch of bulls. Uh, Richard Dawkins talking uh, about the soul. Now, elsewhere in the book, you kind of established that there are two categories of soul. There's soul one uh, and soul two. But maybe you could begin by why you picked this particular title. Well, the title came rather late. It was in Gillian Summerscales and I were putting together this collection of essays, and we did need a title. And um, uh, science is something I do feel very passionately about. And so in the sense of what I call soul two, the soul that is not immortal, but the soul of sort of spirituality, the sense of um, feeling emotionally moved by something. Science really gets to me like that. So science in the soul is an appropriate characterization of the way I feel. Um, and it wasn't really meant to be that provocative. I think it's, it's true that the word soul is used in at least two different ways. And I do rather resent the way the words, words like soul and spirituality have been hijacked by the religious. Well, so there's two different ways. Uh, one of them is, and this is the one that you discount, uh, is the persistence of something beyond death. Uh, that's one kind of soul. Uh, say what the other kind of soul uh, is. You, you, you just uh, hinted at it, but say more. Well, I tried to say, when, when I look up at the stars and reflect how the immense distances of space, the fact that the stars we can see are in our own galaxy, one of hundreds of billions of galaxies, I mean, that is a sobering, deeply moving thought. I get a lump in the throat when I think about that. I get the same lump in the throat when I uh, visit the CERN um, um, at Atomic Energy um, establishment place in, in Geneva, yeah. um, or when I see a big, a big telescope. Um, uh, and when I look down a microscope at the detail, the, the incredible detail, especially an electron microscope, the incredible detail of a living cell, these are deeply moving experiences. Science can do that, just as poetry can, just as art can. Science in the soul. Right. So, well, I don't know. There's so many ways that would be interesting to explore that. But in a way, you're saying these things, I mean, some of the things you're describing uh, are the ways in which we are moved in a way that's not necessarily rational. In other words, there might be no particular reason that a Mozart trumpet quartet would bring me to tears uh, or that uh, a beautiful painting would move you or even uh, looking at, at something that's happening in, in a super collider. Uh, th these are ways in which we are stirred in a way that isn't maybe necessarily explicable in a linear fashion? Well, it's ultimately explicable, but it's true that we can't explain it at the moment. 
I, I wouldn't want to say there's anything um, supernatural about it. But yes, I can be moved to tears by Mozart or Schubert, and I'm not ashamed of that. It's not irrational, but so far we can't necessarily produce a sort of step-by-step rational account of it. Well, see, this is where... So now, now we're at that interesting juncture. This is the hard problem, so-called, right? I mean, it's, it's a little bit for a few steps down the road from the hard problem, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, which is that the, the, no matter how much we seem to know on a materialist level about the brain and how the brain works, we, we not only can't explain why you're moved by Schubert, we can't even explain why you have the peculiar experience of hearing Middle C played on a piano. We, we can't, there's nothing we can point to to say that's what's happening when you experience that moment, right? I agree. That's why it's called the hard problem, and, and I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I, I think it ultimately has to have an explanation. The explanation ultimately lies in brains, but um, I'm not even sure what an explanation would look like. Right. That, you say that in the book, and you also say this is, I think, uh, something that uh, a piece that you did for a Mike Wallace uh, compendium about what will happen in 50 years. So y- you, you do say, I think, in that piece, OK, well, in 50 years, we're going to know the answer. Although, I mean, Leibniz was essentially asking this question in 1714. So, I mean, the, the interest on this loan is piling up. Um, OK, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, I... I I think I said in 50 years we'd have killed the soul. I'm not trying to say we'd have solved the hard problem. Um, but um, I think what I might have said is that if anybody can solve the hard problem, it will be done by science. And, and I mean, in a way, I think that for someone like you, those things or those parts of, let's say, physics that fall into a category covered these days by terms like hidden variables... You know, those are mysteries with a small M. For other people, they're mysteries with a big M, a capital M, right? That, that, that these are mysteries because we can't solve them, because we're never going to solve them, because ultimately when we see the solution, the solution will have a component that isn't purely scientific. I don't know. Is there any way to bridge the chasm between those two points of view? I don't know whether there will be problems that we can never, ever solve. What I think I do know is that um, if science can't solve them, nothing can. All right. So there may be difficulties that the hard problem of consciousness may be one. Um, the origin of the laws of physics and the physical constants may be another. Um, I, I think it's, a, it's an even bet, really, whether we shall ever understand where the laws of physics come from. If we don't, then nothing will help us to understand it. And if we do, that's very exciting. If physics comes to an end, if we, if we finally know everything, and some people think that's a rather empty, hollow feeling, uh, other people find it rather exciting that we shall know everything. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm one who, and I know that you justifiably feel there's a lot of hokum and bunkum that attaches, and you're right to say that people use quantum mysteries to gin up all kinds of ridiculous things. But there, for me, when I, I look at the, the, the work of John Archibald Wheeler, a physicist who, whom you quote at the beginning of the book, and then you know, what he f- says about how some of reality appears to be created by the mind, by observation, it doesn't seem that far from Buddhist notions of m- maya, you know, that, that, that I feel like there might be a point way out there where these two poles touch one another uh, as opposed to repel one another. But you're never going to go for that, right? I, I don't like uh, being mystical about things. I, I like the idea that things do have a rational explanation. 
What was the quote from Wheeler that you that you thought was implying that? Well, I, I think the quote that you have in your book is the one where he says that, you know, ultimately when we figure it all out, and I think he is talking about uh, uh, quantum reality and hidden variables and, and some kind of consistent theory uh, of physics, that it's going to be this incredibly simple thing, you oh, know, yes. where, we, where we say, oh, we should have understood that uh, all right. along. How uh, could we have been so blind, is what he said. Right. Oh, I, I, I accept that. I mean, I, I think that... Um, Quite often, uh, great mysteries are solved, and then with hindsight, they say, how could we not have known that? How could we be so blind? T.H. Huxley, when he closed The Origin of Species, uh, when he first read it, said, how incredibly stupid of me not to have thought of that. And I think that's a, a rather beautiful thing, actually, to, to, to find an idea so beautiful, so wonderful. You say, how, how stupid not to have thought of that. All right, we're talking to we're talking at last to Richard Dawkins. We have to take a very very quick break here. We're, we'll come back. We might even talk about things that aren't quite as hard to talk about. There aren't hard problems. Things like subtitles versus dubbing. So good at being a genius. Oh yeah, he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. It's such a good book. Oh. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from our intern, Sarah Bly. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sam Harris. On tomorrow's nose, we wonder why Justin Timberlake was invited back to the Super Bowl and Janet Jackson wasn't. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're talking to Richard Dawkins. Uh, why are we talking to Richard Dawkins? Because uh, a week from Saturday, he will come to the Bushnell uh, with the great uh, Carl Zimmer. Uh, they will have a conversation on stage. You may be there in the audience. It's November 4th. Tickets for an evening with Richard Dawkins, parentheses, and Carl Zimmer, close parentheses, are available at uh, bushnell.org. All right, so Richard Dawkins, you know, one nice thing about uh, this book, uh, uh, Science and the Soul, is that these selected writings, uh, for those of us who, who are, are cerebral cortexes, uh, cortices, get overtaxed by some of these really profound questions. Towards the end of the book, you give us a, a little bit of a rest, uh, and you take on some more pedestrian or at least kind of mundane uh, questions uh, that we can all understand. For example, um, you don't like rules. You don't like hard and fast rules, and particularly you don't, you, you don't think airlines should have these inflexible rules <laughs> about exactly how much the, you can bring on, on yeah. board. Talk about that. Yes, well, I, I, I was moved to write that because I was at Heathrow Airport and there was a young mother with a daughter who'd had eczema and she had a little a tub of ointment which she desperately wanted to take on the plane because the poor girl, little girl was, was suffering from eczema. She wasn't allowed to. And it was absolutely clear that the airline officials, equivalent of TSA, um, wanted to let her so they could see she wasn't a terrorist. Nobody in their right mind could think she was a terrorist. But rule book said you're not allowed to let people through. And so he, the, the man even called his supervisor, and she too was terribly anxious for help, but she couldn't do it. The rule book is written down, and therefore it has no discretion. It can't change its mind. 
that was what I was objecting to. Although, uh, so the alternative to that is maybe a whole world that we think of as hur- heuristics, right? The, a way of making kind of um, uh, educated guesses about things. And the problem, of course, is that the minute you substitute that for the rule book, particularly in that somewhat overheated situation, you have the problem of profiling, right? That if you're going to say that this kind of person obviously doesn't pose the same kind of threat as that kind of person, um, ultimately there, there's a danger that you're going to substitute your own prejudice is for uh, anything right. that might be identifiable yeah. as common sense. You're right, but nevertheless, I was, I was so uh, upset at this poor young mother's plight that I, I, I wrote that essay. And, and, I mean, some of the things I'm not allowed to take on board, it, it, the, the idea of, of um, making a bomb by two, liquid, two little bits of liquid, I, I think was a, a chemist put something on the Internet saying what you would actually need if you wanted to make a, a binary bomb the two different liquids. It's utterly unfeasible. Right. I'm pretty sure you can't make it with honey, which you were not allowed to bring on the plane. So so we're going to just sort of quickly, in the time we have left, uh, leapfrog across a few other categories. Um, You and I have very similar thoughts about subtitles uh, versus dubbing, but uh, let's uh, let the audience hear yours. Well, I'm ashamed of of the Anglo-American monoglottism. I'm ashamed of the fact that we are so bad at languages. And um, when I ask my continental friends why they're so good at it, they usually say it's because they need it, because, because they need English. But I think there's a better reason, which is that they're bombarded with English the whole time. On television, they get English, uh, and, they get, and they get subtitles. If only we had subtitles in British television, when, this, for example, during the French election, it would have been a wonderful opportunity to practice our school French. But what do we get? We get about two words of French from a French politician, and then his voice or her voice is faded out, and we get the voice of an interpreter instead. Why can't we have subtitles? I actually met the director general of the BBC, the boss of the BBC, and I put that very point to him. And he said, oh, what a good idea, we never thought of that. Well, although one thing, I mean, I share your feelings about this, although one thing I am occasionally told, and I think you've been told this this as well, that uh, one of the reasons that we don't like dubbing is because we've never heard and seen it done well. That, for example, in Germany, where they do speak a lot of languages, they also uh, dub, but they dub uh, with uh, with what? With a certain amount of uh, genius attached to it. Yes, I mean, in, in Germany, dubbing is extremely well done. But I wasn't talking about dubbing. I'm talking about um, just simply the, the voiceover. Right. Dubbing of a film, dubbing of a feature film, that, that's another matter. I don't like that either, but I could see that some people might like it. But on television, the television news, the rolling television news, that's not dubbed. It's the voice of an interpreter. You, you, you hear the voice of the politician of riches faded out. Right. And then you hear the voice of the interpreter. It's not dubbing. Uh, it, so, so dubbing is really irrelevant to this, to this discussion. All right, so we're going to uh, jump to one more lily pad, and then we'll be out of time, Richard Dawkins. There's a piece in the book uh, about jury trials and beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, another thing you have some question uh, about. Explain. Well, I've been on three juries, and I wasn't very impressed. Um, when you think about it, if you think about courtroom dramas, we've all seen courtroom dramas, the jury retires, and the entire court, including the judge, is on tenterhooks waiting for the jury to come back are they going to say guilty or not guilty? But if beyond reasonable doubt is, take, is serious, nobody in the court should be in any doubt, because all of the judge and everybody else in the court have heard the entire trial. 
So if there's any doubt, everybody should know what the doubt is. Why wait for the jury, if you see what I mean? Um, so I just simply was trying to say that beyond reasonable doubt, it is made a mockery of um, by the fact that what I just said. Well, isn't there a notion that there's... Um there's something about the adversary or, or discussing. There's an adversarial process going on in the courtroom. That adversarial process is then handed over to a jury, uh, and there's a humanistic belief, right? There, there's a, a belief that maybe goes back to the Enlightenment, saying these people will be able to take all the information that they've been given and apprehend the truth or as close to the truth uh, as can be gotten. Well, that's the ideal, yes, but you, you do see my point, don't you, that beyond reasonable doubt, if the jury takes days and days and days arguing about it, there's got to be reasonable doubt. Right. Although, I mean, and you are honest about this in the essay, it's hard to know what what we put in place of that. I mean, in reality, here in the U.S., we don't have that many jury trials. That's done by heuristics, too. People plead yeah. out. There's a kind of sense of, well, what would really make sense for you to do here? We don't want to go to the trouble of putting you on. I mean, jury trials are a luxury here in the United States. Um, yeah. and, and, Another way of putting my point would be to say, suppose you had two juries listening to the same trial. How much would you bet that the two juries would come to the same result? Right. Uh, well, what's your answer to that? Well, in the case of the O.J. Simpson trial, I, I wouldn't bet very much. Right. And, and so, that's true of many, many trials, actually, too. Yeah. Well, truth can be circumstantial. Well, I'm so glad that we did get a chance to talk about a few things. Uh, and Congratulations that we, on soldiering on in spite of everything. I, I'm uh, impressed. I kind of enjoy uh, moments like that. So, so thanks so much for being with us today. This has been Richard Dawkins, at least for some of the show. And thanks to all you people who called in, too. That was so nice of you, because I'm sure you could tell that the host was wondering. I mean, look, I can talk for a long time. You know, I mean, it won't necessarily be interesting, but I can talk for a long time. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the new book is Science in the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist. Uh, and you can see uh, Richard Dawkins and Carl Zimmer uh, at the Bushnell on November 4th. Thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. There were a lot of people running around here, not just the people we thank in the pre-prepared credits, but Sajina Amatruda was trying to save us and our wonderful intern and Betsy Kaplan and John Dankosky. I mean, it is true that if you sound like you're drowning here, a lot of people are going to run around and try to throw you a life preserver. Of course, I'm the kind of person who just swats them away. I don't know why I have that quality. Be reasonable, demand the impossible now. Be reasonable, demand the impossible now.